Well, good morning. It is great to be with you all. As David mentioned earlier, uh, I'm pastoring a church in Lakeland, Florida, and also work with uh, Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling. But being here this morning is like walking back through the last 25 years of history uh, for my, my family and I, because uh, people who are either here at New Covenant now or New Covenant itself has played roles in, in parts of that history. So I think back 25 years ago, and, and Kyle Locke, who I saw this morning, was the associate pastor of the church that I uh, started attending as a college sophomore, and a little ARP church in Seneca, South Carolina, and uh, I became a ministry intern in that church. And then I think about uh, Tim Pitzer, who about 15 years ago, as I was uh, serving at Clemson Presbyterian Church, became my intern. And I remember sitting down and having conversations with him about this girl that he wanted to ask out. He said, there's this girl, Stephanie Caldwell, who's way out of my league. And I, I'm thinking maybe I should ask her out, what do you think? And I said, Tim, she is way out of your league but God is merciful, so you should give it a shot. And, uh, and so to, to be here and see Tim with his three girls and know that there's one at home is just an amazing flashback to those conversations. And I think about, about 20 years ago when, when we uh, attended here for about six months right before, it was the last six months of uh, seminary for me, and we were here right before we launched out into ministry in North Carolina. And our daughter, Maggie, was an infant at the time. And now our daughter is uh, going on 20, uh, going into her senior year of college. And I think, where did the time go? But it's, it's really uh, great to be here and to think about all those little points that are part of, of our history, the Lord's work in our lives. And so uh, thank you for, for having me this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me to Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18, we're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. Proverbs 18 is kind of a go-to passage for those of us who do counseling. I, I begin uh, most intake sessions, which is the session right at the beginning where you're just learning the situation by either quoting or making some kind of reference to Proverbs 18, 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is to his folly and shame. I always have that in the back of my mind. Of course, the, in the middle of this passage, there's uh, kind of the classic text on gossip, these, uh, these words, these juicy morsel words that go down and are, are so enticing. But the, the words from Proverbs 18 that I want to look at this morning are verses 20 and 21, which I think give us a kind of a theology of the significance of words. And so... I don't know if you'll do this here, but we do this in our church. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read Proverbs 18, verses 20 and 21. This is the word of God. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Pray with me. Lord, this is your word. Would you meet with us here, speak by your word, give us 
eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe in faith and repentance. And may you be glorified in it all. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it was around 2008. My dad was in the hospital in Canton, Ohio. He, was, he had been going through a struggle with, with cancer, and I'd gone up to visit with him. We'd spent a long day in the hospital. It, it wasn't a particularly good day. He hadn't done well that day. And my mom and my brother and I, uh, after leaving the hospital, were hungry. It was late. And so we decided to stop off at Bob Evans. Now, if you're, if you're not familiar with Bob Evans, uh, it is one of the state of Ohio's great gifts to humanity. And it is it's basically Cracker Barrel without the rusty farm equipment on the walls. Uh, same food, same basic genre. Uh, and so we, we go to Bob Evans. It's late. The waiter who serves us, I can tell it's been a long shift for him. And as he's serving us and bringing things to our table and we're saying thank you, he responds with, not a problem. Now, I'd kind of been conditioned, lived in Chick-fil-A land for so long, that there was just something about that that in the moment, after a long day, bothered me. Not a problem? I didn't think it was going to be a problem. And I suddenly, in that moment, turned into kind of a sarcastic Seinfeld. Right? I go on this, as he walks away, I go on this monologue with my mom and brother, like, why is he saying not a problem? Isn't this his job? Of course it's not a problem. What I don't realize is he actually hasn't walked nearly as far away as I think. <laughs> and I realize that the moment he comes back to the table, and as he brings our next serving, and we say thank you, he very deliberately says, you're welcome. And I just, I felt awful. Because here is a person I've never met. I don't know his story. And instead of taking the opportunity to, to speak words of encouragement, words of life, in that moment, I decided to just pick him apart with sarcasm. And of course, that's a, that's a small moment, right? Those are, that's nowhere near the, the worst moments of my life where I've spoken words of death, words that are destructive that I terribly regret. But it stuck with me. For some reason, years later, I kept thinking about that moment in Bob Evans, thinking, why was I so foolish? Why did I speak that way? And I think it's just that realization of, here's a, here's a man who is created in the image of God. He is either in Christ and therefore a brother in Christ, or he is someone who desperately needs Christ, and I just picked him apart with sarcasm. When we think of words, we, we live in a world where words are not highly valued. They're not treated as sacred. Right? We say things like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we know that's not true. We say talk is cheap. Words are meaningless. Actions are all that really matter. But really, is that true? That actions are all that matter? Words that are not paired with actions obviously are, can be undermined. But words themselves are sacred. Our culture sees words as 
kind of amoral assets that can be used to create a narrative, to manipulate situations, to influence, to accomplish what we want. But all of us know that words are not amoral assets. All of us know that words do things. They accomplish things. They can destroy people, and they can build people up. When a minister says to a bride and groom, I now pronounce you man and wife, his words have done something. He's ratified a sacred covenant between them. And in the same way, when years later, one of them says to the other, I don't love you anymore. I never loved you. Those words have done something. Right? In one case, those words have given life, and in another, those words have brought death. When you overhear friends gossiping about you, there's a, there's a mini death that's created internally. And likewise, when you receive a promotion at work because you hear that a coworker spoke well of your character, that's also done something. Those words of encouragement are life-giving. And so words are always moving the needle toward life or death in relationships. We, we buy the lie that words are flippant and meaningless or throwaway commodity, but the truth is words are powerful. Words possess the power of life and death. Our words are either building up, tearing down, and every word we speak ultimately is either in the service of King Jesus or it's in the service of King Self. The book of James captures this well. So it's a long passage, but I think we, we need the, just the weight of what James is unpacking here. James uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 12, he writes, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring bring forth this, uh, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond, can a salt pond yield fresh water. And so the basic gist here is the tongue is extremely powerful, and we are utterly sinful, and that's a really dangerous combination. That can have really dangerous and destructive effects 
in our lives and in the lives of others. And so the, the, when, when we think about this, we think about the, the idea that, well, words are just meaningless. They're just kind of a throwaway commodity. I would just encourage you, think about your own life. Think about times when someone has said something to you so hurtful that it just wrecked your entire day. Or maybe it wrecked more than your day. Maybe it wrecked weeks at a time. Think about some, something maybe you've said where you think, if only I could take back those words. If only I could unsay those words. I know it's true for me. The, 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 the words I regret go far worse than sarcasm toward a waiter at Bob Evans. And so this, this realization forces us to ask, how is it that the tongue has so much power? Why is this the case? And so to answer that question, what I want to give you is a brief theology of words. I know when a, when a preacher says a brief anything, you're skeptical. I'll try to be brief. A brief theology of words. So as we examine scripture, we see immediately that words play a huge story in the role of the world. So immediately, right off the bat, in the creation account, God creates the world by speaking it into existence. God says, let there be light, and there's light. And with each day of creation, God speaks the universe into existence. And then we see God speaking again, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. And immediately after creating man and woman in his image, he speaks words to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, air, of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Isn't it interesting that even in their unfallen state, Adam and Eve needed words. They needed revelation. God didn't create them kind of pre-downloaded with all the data that they needed. In their unfallen state, they need God to talk to them, to tell them things. So God says to Adam that he may eat from any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, all of this is, is coming through God's life-giving words to Adam and Eve. And now, now man, made in the image of God, reflecting this pattern, he begins to speak. And so he speaks, naming the animals. And he speaks, identifying Eve as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And Adam and Eve now begin to share communication with God and with one another. And then in Genesis 3, we see new words. We see Satan enter the picture, and he uses words for the first time for a wicked purpose. Satan speaks. He doesn't have words of his own. So he takes the words that have been spoken and he twists them, he distorts them. Has God really said? And in response to Satan's words, Adam and Eve sin, plunging themselves and all of creation under the curse of sin. Part of the curse on Adam comes because he, he listened to a voice other than the voice of God. But then when confronted by God, we see Adam compounds his use of sinful words. He begins to blame shift. The, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit, and I ate. So he blames Eve, and then he blames God himself for giving him Eve. And then Eve blame shifts. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so they come under God's curse. 
And part of that curse entails enmity between the man and his wife. And now throughout all ages, men and women will struggle with communication in marriage. They will use their words to to hurt and destroy one another rather than speaking words of life. And the rest of biblical history is an accounting of all these places where people are speaking destructive words. Words that tear down. Words that are filled with deceit. Words that are filled with pride. But also, the rest of the biblical narrative is an accounting of God himself continuing to speak. And so even after the the destructive effects of the fall on everything, including our words, God continues to speak into that. And so he reveals himself to Noah, and he speaks, and he reveals himself to Abram, and he speaks, and he reveals himself to Moses, and he speaks, and he gives Moses words that he is now called to speak to Israel to direct sinful man back to God. But the word that we need ultimately is a word that comes later. It's the word of God incarnate. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So when we ask, what does it look like when God speaks to me? I just want to hear God speak. Author of Hebrews says, look to the person and work of Jesus. It is in his Son that God has spoken to us in these last days. Jesus is the word of God to fallen humanity. He is God's self-revelation. God has spoken and made himself known. Jesus is the word made flesh. John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16 through 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So now only in the person and work of Jesus can we be redeemed, and therefore only in the person and work of Jesus can our tongues be redeemed, and our words be redeemed. In the end... A redeemed tongue is a tongue that looks for opportunities to magnify the supremacy and the worth of Jesus in all things. It may happen in some very mundane moments, but the the foundational truth behind all of it is, how can I use my tongue, how can I use my words in such a way that the supremacy and worth of Jesus is magnified and made known in the world? See, those who've been redeemed have been given a mission. And guess what's at the heart of that mission? The heart of that mission is speaking. We have a message to proclaim. And so Jesus entrusts us with authority to proclaim the message of his saving work, to teach others all things that he has first taught to us. And God has chosen to equip us through words. He's given us his written word and speaks to us as we open the pages of this word. He's revealed himself through human language. He calls us now to 
to read and memorize and meditate upon, and also to speak these life-changing words. And so all of this tells us that God creates human speech for his glory. Our words are sacred because they're central to how we glorify God and others. And therefore, it's, it's really of the utmost importance that we get to the root of our sins of the tongue. Because what's on the line is the very mission that God has given us. So let's turn back now to Proverbs 18 to see what we learn from this. What we learn here is that our words are both fruit and seed. So look with me again at Proverbs 18, verses 20 and 21. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So this proverb is asking us to envision our lives as a field. It's, it's a strange image initially. It's a field that's being planted. Seeds are being put in the ground. And the seeds that are being put in the ground are coming from the words we speak. And so it's the, the fruit of our lips. This putting seeds in the ground that's growing up to fruit that then we will partake of and the others around us will partake of. And so if we're planting seeds of malice or hatred or anger, it will grow up into fruit of malice and hatred and anger. Not only will the people around us eat of that fruit, but this proverb tells us we're going to eat it too. We're going to partake of the very fruit that we're planting. If your tongue is full of poison, you'll end up eating poisonous fruit. And the field of your life will be a curse to you and to others. And so the person who who gossips, creates a field full of poisonous fruit that not only is going to create division between others, but is also going to come back to bring hardship upon the, the life of the speaker. The person who, who vents their anger not only speaks words that destroy others, but also is planting a field that's going to produce fruit and going to bring that destruction back on the life of the speaker. Likewise with a man or woman who speaks haughty words or, or lying words or selfish words. But if your life is regularly marked by the fruit of the Spirit, you'll plant a field that will grow up to be a blessing. And since your life becomes an orchard that produces fruit that when others eat it, they say, that gives me life. That builds me up. That strengthens me. That points me toward Christ. That helps me understand more of who I am, who I'm created to be. And so, the man who regularly speaks words of encouragement will not only bless the people that are receiving that encouragement, but that blessing will come back on him as well because he's planting a field. Same with the woman who speaks with gentleness and humility. The field of her life will be a blessing to those around her and will bless her as well as she eats of the fruit that's produced. And so this image helps us to see how exactly the power of life and death are in the tongue. Sometimes when you think about words of death, sometimes we think about the, the just severe, crushing, death blow kind of words. 
right? When a judge pronounces, I find you guilty, those are death blow words. They're severe. They crush us in a moment. When, when a spouse says, I never loved you, that's a death blow kind of statement that requires the Spirit of God to bring healing over time. But most, most of how this happens is through the slow killing effect of words, of just verbal poison that we kind of put into our words day after day. It's the, it's the daily gossip. It's the daily grumbling, the daily complaining, the daily criticism, the daily jeering, the daily sarcasm that's, that's, not, that's left unchecked by the Spirit. A little bit of rat poison that, that doesn't kill you instantly. It just erodes your sense of life and vitality over time. It erodes life around you and others, and it erodes your life as well. You see, our words are not just seed that's planting the field of our lives. They are actually first, before they're seed, they're fruit. I know the image gets a little confusing here, but what we are putting into the ground is first the fruit of what's planted deep within us. Our words reveal our functional gods. They reveal our deepest desires. They reveal what we really love. And so Jesus says in Luke 6, 43 through 45, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And so that means that our words are revealing what's planted deep down within us. The words that we speak are the fruit of who we really are. We, we can try to cover it up by saying, well, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But the reality is, what we're just saying is something is just saying something about who we are. A lot of times, in moments of regret, you might say this, I find myself saying it, I'm, I'm really sorry for what I said. That is just not who I am. But if we understand what Jesus is saying here, it's actually more appropriate to say, I am really sorry for what I just said because that is who I am. And I need God's grace to fundamentally change who I am. James 4 shows us how that which is deep within comes out in our words and actions. He writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, isn't that a great question? Isn't that like one of the most practical questions ever? What, what actually is causing all this fighting and quarreling that we experience? He says, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what's your answer if someone says, hey, what's the cause of this quarrel you seem to be stuck in? What's the answer you typically give? My answer is usually going to be looking outward. 
well, if this, if this guy would just stop being such a jerk, then this quarrel wouldn't be happening. There'd be no problem. But James says, no, no, the problem is actually not outside. The problem is on the inside. He says it's because you have passions that are at war within you. Every ugly word starts with an unmet desire. And sometimes those desires are not bad desires in and of themselves. They might be good desires that have turned into absolute demands. So we go from I desire to I demand it must be this way. When someone doesn't meet that expectation, I demand goes to I punish. Actually, before we get to I punish, we say I pronounce a judgment. I desire, I demand, I judge. Because I've judged and found you guilty, then I punish. And the punishment always seems justified. But James says we have to take a close look at what's happening inside. We have to ask, what are those expectations that have turned into demands? Are are they coming from God? Are they coming from his word? Or are these more representations of my thoughts, my opinions, my preferences, the way I think the world should be? Are these expectations that are governed by King Jesus, or are they governed by King Self and what I think the world should be like? Friends, the battle to control our words has to begin on the inside. Only inside-out transformation will redeem our words in the end. And so that brings us to our final point this morning, redeeming our words through wisdom. Now, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And one of the paradigms that we see in Proverbs is that wisdom is always the move, moving the needle in the direction of life, and foolishness is always moving the needle in the direction of death. But it forces us to ask, well, what is wisdom ultimately? It's easy to take the book of Proverbs and kind of extract it from the the larger context of Scripture and the storyline of redemption and say, well, Proverbs basically just gives me principles that if I do them, everything turns out just right. And so it's more of an outside-in approach. If I apply this principle to this situation, then I get this result, and it works every time, and so that's, that's how I redeem my words through wisdom. But actually, if we, if we stop there, the, the fact is, Proverbs is offering us wisdom, and it is giving us principles, and if we do apply them, life generally goes better with those principles. But that's, that's not where we're meant to end in our process of applying wisdom. Because what's the foundation of wisdom? The book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so any approach to wisdom that's just kind of a chicken soup for the soul, right? Just like I just apply this principle and try to make these things happen that's divorced from the fear of the Lord is going to fall short of God's intention for redeeming our words through wisdom. More specifically, on this side of the cross, we cannot study the wisdom of Proverbs apart from the one who is wisdom, And that is Jesus Christ himself. Colossians 2.3 speaks of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in the person and work of Jesus. Only in him will our words be redeemed, because only in him has wisdom reached its fullness. Only in him is there a wisdom that actually does an inside-out work. This isn't just principles that I'm applying to try to make my life more peaceful and serviceable to humanity. This is about inside-out transformation, that the one who is wisdom is working as he begins to change fundamentally who I am. Only in Christ do we find a wisdom that can change our very nature and the very things we love. A wisdom that can turn our sinful and prideful hearts into humble and joyful hearts. And therefore, it's only in Christ that our words will be redeemed. And only in surrendering our our hearts and our lives and our tongues to him that we will go from speaking words of destruction, words that are self-serving, to words that are life-giving and magnify the worth of the one who is wisdom incarnate. Only through the ultimate life-giver will our words cease from working destruction and begin to give life themselves. And so... Friends, brothers and sisters, may we, may we look to the, the one who came, the word who was made flesh, full of grace and truth, that we in union with him would begin to, to speak words that reflect him, that also are full of grace and truth. And friends, when an entire church lays hold of this, it, 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 enables, it enables us to take what is gospel doctrine and translated into gospel culture. Right? It is possible to have right gospel doctrine to be able to understand, articulate the doctrine of justification by faith alone and why that's foundational to our faith, and it absolutely is. But if we believe it, then it has to translate into gospel culture, something that's felt and seen and known in our love and our hospitality and our graciousness and our longing to speak life-giving words. What does it look like? It can, it can look a lot of different ways. Let me just give you two examples because I, we tend to think of the kind of the easier surface level elements of this. But I think where it really matters is how we deal with sin in the life of the church. And so just earlier this week, I was on a phone call with a guy in our church who the Lord has, has delivered from sin in a pretty profound way and who is experiencing a, a new joy that he hadn't known for years. And he's begun meeting with another brother who is dealing with the same thing and coming alongside him in a way, and creating a space where there is a safety for confession of sin and there is also, there is also a place where restoration, accountability, and gospel growth can take place. And together they're saying, how can, how can we make this more part of the culture of the life of our church? Where people feel like this is a place where it is, it is safe to be a sinner in the process of transformation. Not safe in the sense that my sin will be given cover, but safe in the sense that I will be loved as one who is a brother or sister in need 
and where people love me enough to seek my restoration and my wholeness. Another example, just from a few weeks ago, is a meeting with a husband and a wife, where a wife had to sit down and create some some boundaries because of sin that was becoming destructive in her life and the life of their family. And trying to do that in a way that would honor her husband and respect him and love him and ultimately aim at his transformation and restoration and not just be punitive and yet at the same time being honest about what you're doing is creating this effect in the life of our home. And to see the the wisdom and grace with, with which she was able to do that, that created a, by God's spirit working through those words, created an openness in his heart to say, honey, you are absolutely right. And began a process of, of change and, and transformation in his life. Where the rubber meets the road with a lot of these issues of how we speak is in how we deal with sin. Do we have a restorative mindset? Do we have an others-focused mindset that longs for their good? Or are we kind of constantly in self-protection mode that says, I'm going to kind of protect myself from the words of others and, and... and, and punish those who don't meet my expectations and just kind of keep myself safe. Gospel culture is not safe. It is not comfortable. It is anything but neat and tidy. But it is life-giving. And it's the spaces where the Savior invites us to, to step in and meet him where he's at work in people's lives. And so my prayer for for myself, for all of us, that as we know more of the grace of the one who is the word incarnate, full of grace and truth, that we too would begin to reflect his character and his likeness. And in our words, we would begin to speak like him with words of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious heart toward us. We thank you for a Savior who is gentle and lowly with sinners and sufferers. You draw near to us when we are at our worst. And you speak words of life. Words that are concerned with our transformation. Lord, I pray that as we receive that abundant mercy from you, that you would make us a people who are eager to show that mercy toward others. Help us to to know and to discern what it looks like to, to be merciful with our words while also reflecting the, the glorious truth that you have given to us in your word. We thank you. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.